Wow, that was good. You guys are fired up today. This is fun. Must be that yelling. We should do that one more time. You guys want to yell one more time? Good. Yeah, all right. How fun. Uh, <laughs> throws me off. If you just do that multiple times while I'm preaching, we'll see how things go. Um, so somebody asked this week, why do we keep showing these videos through the series? We're in the series uh, on Nehemiah called Broken, and we really just want to bring uh, people from grace to your attention who are out there kind of living out a Nehemiah sort of spirit. They see brokenness around them and they're stepping into it, whether that's in Pontiac or we've had Jay when doing things here in Harper Woods and other schools and people from Providence House. So the idea is uh, these are people who God has just uh, pointed towards doing something and they've stepped out in action. We're hoping that it inspires you to do the same. So we're looking at this book called Nehemiah and a series that we've called Broken. And the thread that runs throughout this entire series is that God is up to something, that God is moving, that God is at work. And really our jobs as followers of God is to pay attention to what God is up to, to, to step into it. And one of the ways that's gonna happen is when God begins to show you the brokenness that's all around us. God begins to show you brokenness and then break your heart towards that. And then through the spirit of God empowering you, you step into the brokenness and then you are a part of the rebuilding and you are part of the, the restoration. And then, and then we play a part in ushering re revival into our city, into our families, into our communities. Um, but that's the picture that we have here. Um, I want to stop for a minute. Uh, and just pray for Norflet and pray for Gerald. They are both preaching right now in other churches. So uh, uh, Gerald is in uh, Fort Wayne preaching and, Ger and Norflet is on the west side preaching and I'm here preaching, but you knew that already. Uh, but we're just gonna pray for a minute. Lord, we just pray, uh, just, it just hit me as we were worshiping uh, this beautiful picture of Grace being ascending church and uh, our guys being uh, scattered around uh, teaching the word of God today, and that's a beautiful blessing. So we pray that you would just pour out your spirit on Norflet. I pray that you would pour out your spirit on Gerald. I pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place, uh, that we would just be moved um, by your, your word, that we would be moved to step into the chaos around us and to see you do more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power of the spirit that's at work within us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, so uh, this is fair warning uh, I'm going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Uh, I'm, I, I know it's a lot. It's a lot more than I normally would do, but I just feel like it's necessary. This is kind of Vision Sunday, the first Sunday in June. We always talk about uh, what God is doing and who we are as a church, so that's going to come out in this. I'm going to stay in Nehemiah, but I'm going to move through uh, quite a few different passages. So one of the things I encourage you to do is just keep your Bible open uh, throughout the morning, and we're going to start in Zechariah. So if you want to open your Bibles, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's one under your seat. I always encourage you to bring a Bible. Bible, or if you're using an electronic reader, that's great. Uh, we appreciate that as well. You can uh, feel free to send something out on Facebook or tweet, whatever you do. Let them know that God's doing something in here. But Zechariah is part of the minor prophets. So if you were at Matthew and went back into the Old Testament, it might be quicker to find than starting at Genesis because it's the very end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter four. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, it's page 794. And just while you're looking for that, let me put the passage into a little bit of perspective. Why would we be talking about Zechariah? Well, Zechariah is a prophet, and he is really a contemporary in the same general time frame as Nehemiah and Ezra. So this is uh, one of the prophets of, of that day. 
the verse I'm going to read is a verse that I feel like God has chosen specifically for us, kind of as a theme verse for the next coming ministry year. What happens is uh, every year in January, I go away and um, just sit and pray and, and ask the Lord for a word for our church, for a passage for our church. And uh, this was the passage that I felt like God had given me. As a matter of fact, I began to journal about the passage and then had a, an interaction with Norflet where he brought the passage up uh, and we'd never talked about it before in this way. And it just was very much a confirmation to me that, that this is the, the verse that becomes the theme for us as we move into this next ministry season. So Zechariah 4, verse 6. And many of you have heard this passage before, um, and we're going to come back to it again in, in a little bit and unpack it a little bit more. But Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Again, I just encourage you to stick a piece of paper, or if you got that little thread, put that in there so you can go back to this, because we're going to go back and unpack the Zechariah passage in a few minutes. Uh, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a step back and we're going to see the grand story that God is writing. We're going to see how Nehemiah fits into God's larger narrative. And the truth of the matter is, I hope as you hear that, you're going to realize that as God calls you into action, as God calls you to do something, you too are a part of this grand story that God is writing. We talked about that with Nehemiah. Remember in chapter two, when you have all the different families that are doing different works. And I said, I think somewhere there's a book that God is writing that has all the different things that the families are doing. And, and it's just this picture of God keeping track of how we've all played a part in, in the kingdom movement that he has for us. So we're going to look at the, the grand narrative. As we look back, we're going to see some profound lessons about how, that apply to us, not just as a church on Vision Sunday, but also just as followers of Jesus. So I wonder, have you ever heard this, this saying, hindsight is twenty twenty? Yeah, so, so the, the the hindsight is 2020 kind of means that in, when we look back at history, we can kind of see how certain events took place, why certain things happened the way they did. And if you were to apply that spiritually, it happens quite often that when you're in the midst of something, it's hard to figure out what God is doing. But somehow, as you get through it and you look back, you can begin to see oh, now I see what God is up to. And it's especially true when you go through really difficult seasons. Sometimes in the midst of the most difficult season, whether it's a terminal illness of somebody you love or, or just hard times at work or, or just a, a relational chaos that's around you, that it feels like God has abandoned you. It feels like God is nowhere to be found. But in essence, when we get past it, sometimes it's pretty easy to see. I had a similar experience to that when I first sold the business and we started Eagle Sports uh, 18 or so years ago. When we first started, Grace was very gracious and they allowed me to office in the basement here in the building. Well, we had been here for a little while and through a series of events, some people came down to my office and they just basically said, uh, we don't want you here anymore and you got a week to move all your stuff out. That's about how long the conversation was. Um, and it was devastating. I mean, it, it crushed me. I'm, I might be the only full-time volunteer that's ever gotten fired from a church. Um, but to say the least, I was crushed. And I remember standing in my driveway with Penny Blum and saying to Penny, this will never make sense to me. How could this happen? Why would people treat me this way? I mean, I'm sure I was whining a little at the same time. But, but my thought was, this, this makes no sense. God can't be in this, Right? Well, if you know Grace's story, it wasn't too much longer after that that Grace went through a pretty tumultuous season. The church splintered. It was just an ugly season at Grace. And in hindsight, uh, it's very clear to me that what God did is he took 
this little fledgling ministry called Eagle Sports and Doug Kempton, and he sucked us out and he laid us to the side and allowed Grace to go what Grace went through and kind of preserved the ministry of Eagle Sports and kind of preserved my ministry here at Grace. For that season, I really had nothing to do here in the building while the people were in all that turmoil. I was over there, and that was one of our best years of ministry. The ministry grew like crazy while things were chaotic here, and it was only in hindsight that I could see that, right? So sometimes we look back. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Think about Joseph. How many times do you think Joseph in his life couldn't figure out what God was up to, right? Your brothers sell you into slavery, then you finally get a, a break, and then you get, you get accused of doing something you didn't do, and you go to jail. I mean, there must have been seasons where Joseph was like, God, where are you? Like, how is this possible? But somewhere along the way, as Joseph looked back at his, at his life, he could see what God was doing so that by the time his brothers came, he could say, hey, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, right? So that's what hindsight is 2020. So what I, I want to do as we look at these passages of scripture is it's a, pick, it's a way for us to have hindsight. We're going to see the, the grand narrative and see what God is up to. And hopefully it serves as a way of, of just uh, affirming in you and encouraging you along the way. So God's people, right? The, the Israelites, are, they're, they're in, in, in a desperate way. The city of Jerusalem has been leveled. It's, it's in chaos, right? We saw it in the beginning of Nehemiah that when the brothers come back and they say, uh, it lies in ruin and our people are in shame, right? There's chaos all around it. But there is, in the midst of all of that chaos, God is writing this bigger story that I want you to see this morning that's pretty exciting. And to understand the bigger story that God is writing, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Daniel. So I told you I was going to have you jump around, so you're just going to have to bear with me this morning. I know we don't commonly do this, but go to the book of Daniel. That's page 746 in your Bibles under your seat. Uh, Daniel, and let me just give you a little bit of background here. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he's already come. He's, he's uh, just laid siege and destroyed Jerusalem, leveled the city. He, he's taken everything of value out of the city. As a matter of fact, he's even picked the best and the brightest of the people, and he's taken them back to Babylon as, as exiles. And just so you know, Daniel was one of those people. That means that Daniel lived in Jerusalem, but he saw the destruction of, of the city that he loved by this king, Nebuchadnezzar. He probably, we don't know this for sure, but pretty good odds, he saw people he loved and people he knew be killed by this king or by this king's army. And then he's taken basically as a hostage or as a prisoner, and he's taken back to live in exile with this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So that's who Daniel is and what's going on. And Daniel is writing a book. It's both historical, but it's also prophetic. And in this prophetic uh, writing that he has, he's telling the people of Israel, this is how long you are going to be in exile. This is how long you are going to have to be in Babylon. He's also telling them, this is how long it will be before the promised one, the Messiah, is going to come. So if you go back and you read Daniel in its context, it's a, it's a messianic prophecy and it's a prophecy about the, the exile of the people. Okay, so we're in Daniel chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of Darius the son of Assyrius, by the descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. 
Now, this prophecy is pretty straightforward, pretty easy for us to interpret. What he's saying is it's going to be 70 years from the time you were taken into exile before you are released to go back in the build. So when we read Nehemiah, it is part of that group of people who were released after 70 years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, right? So there were people that came before Nehemiah. Those were the people that, that, that Nehemiah was asking, how's it going? Those were the people he expected a different report from and why he was heartbroken over it. But it's 70 years. So pretty straightforward, right? And what, what's going to happen is the first group of people that come, one of the first things they do is rebuild the temple, right? So that they go back and they begin to rebuild the temple. And that'll make more sense as we talk about it. Um, but this is the temple that, that will be there. Um, this is a temple that was destroyed by the Romans, the second temple um, after Jesus, okay? So what does he say? He's gonna, he says in the prophecy, it's going to be 70 years in exile, and then you're going to be sent back. So the second part of the prophecy that I want you to see is also in verse 9, starting in verse 24. You with me still? Say, I'm with you. <laughs> okay, thanks. I know I'm jumping around, but it all is going to come together here, I promise. Daniel 9, 24 and 25. Daniel writes, 70 weeks are decreed about your people in the holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, what we just talked about, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, in a square and a moat, but in a troubled time. This one gets a little bit harder for us to interpret. But what we need to understand is that when, when um, Daniel is talking about weeks, he's not talking about seven days. What he's talking about is seven, seven years. It's actually a week of years. Make sense? So we have seven times 70. So it's going to be 70 weeks or 70 weeks of years. And that adds up to four or multiplies out to be 490 years, 490 years before what happens. Look at the passage. It says before the finishing of the transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. Does that sound like Jesus? It's a prophecy about the Messiah who's going to come. 490 years after you return and begin the rebuilding of the city, then the Messiah is going to come. So Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Zechariah, those who are, are returning are actually starting the clock, if you will, for when Jesus is going to come, for when the Messiah is going to return. And in fact, it was 70 years that they were in captivity. It was 490 years. I love this. As you look at all the experts and you begin to read, they, they all argue as to whether it was 480 years or 492 years. I'm like, dudes, man, it was 490 years. Just if we're missing it by that much, chances are it was exactly the right, and that's just our problem of calculating. But, but needless to say, what God said was going to happen actually happened. Look at verse 25. Daniel says, know therefore and understand. What he's saying is, mark your calendars. Write it down. Let it be clear to everybody from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem from the time you return to the coming of the anointed one will be four." 190 years. And guess what? It was. 
It's how we know Jesus was who we said he was. It's pretty amazing. The one thing we can say for sure is the prophecy makes it clear that Jesus had to come before the second temple was destroyed. The prophecy is making it clear. The temple will be built. It will be there. And then the Messiah would come. He actually even tells them how long it's going to take to rebuild the city. Verse 25, it says, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. It will be standing for 62 weeks. Right? Remember, it's not seven days, but seven years. So 62 times 70, or easier math is eight times seven is 56 years. It's going to take them 56 years to rebuild the city. The rest of the 490 years, the city is going to exist, but it's going to be in troubled times. What do we also know about Jerusalem? It's existed in troubled times for all of that season. So remember, as we began to study Nehemiah, his fellow countrymen show up and they tell him about the ruin that Jerusalem's in. That's why it moves him so deeply. I am convinced that Nehemiah knew the prophecy of Daniel, that he would have read this prophecy and he had in his mind, the rebuilding has started. And you know what that means? The clock has started and the Messiah is coming. So there's more going on in his devastation that, than just the city isn't built. It's, it's, wait a minute, we were supposed to get something started that, that set the hand of time for the Messiah to come. Is a one of the my favorite places, and I'm not sure why it moved me so much when I studied in Jerusalem. Um, I took this picture. This is the rubble that exists below the Temple Mount from when the second temple was destroyed, and and it's just this picture of devastation. These rocks are uh, way they're, they're probably 12, 15 feet tall, and they're just all piled off. The Romans just pushed it up. They leveled the temple. In 70 AD, so just a few years after Jesus, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of this prophecy and understanding that what, what the scriptures said was going to happen actually happened. So the exiles, they return, they begin to build, and they set the clock in motion. It's a, it's a cosmic sort of thing that they're given to do, right? We want you to go back. We want you to start this building. And when you start it, this clock is going to begin to go. The building begins, Right? But here's the problem is they began to build and the first wave of people came before Nehemiah and began to build the communities around them didn't want it to happen. They faced all kinds of opposition. As a matter of fact, the city didn't have a wall and it didn't have any gates. So whenever the surrounding people wanted to, they would drive into the city, they would come into the city, they would raid the city, they would kill people, they would take their supplies and the people were unprotected and they were just kind of defeated in a lot of ways. They stopped some of the work because they were so deeply discouraged. And that's kind of the first thing I want you to hear is if you're going to do God's work, you will face opposition. If you are going to do the work of God, there is an entire army that does not want you to do it and you will face opposition. And you need to expect that so that you're not disheartened and so you don't give up on what God has called you to do. If God has called you to ministry, you will face opposition. And I got news for you. If you're walking with Jesus, God has called you to ministry. Okay? So the first thing is you're going to face opposition. So with all that in mind, again, just one more apology for running all over the place here, but it's all going to come together. I want you to go back to Zechariah. So Zechariah 4, we're going to start reading in verse 6, but now we're going to put that familiar passage, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We're going to put that familiar passage in context. And remember, all the things I've talked about are kind of the historical context of what's going on. So Zechariah 4, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 and just give you a little bit of, of, of commentary as I read it. 
Verse six, it says, then he said to me, the me here is Zechariah, the writer of the book. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zechariah, I'm gonna tell you something and I want you to tell Zerubbabel something. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying if this work of, of building the temple is going to get done, it's not gonna happen through physical strength. It's not gonna happen through, through just trying harder. So when it says not by might, it's talking about physical power, literal muscle power, or the power of a team of horses. It's not gonna be this physical power. It's not by power or not by, by might. The word might there is, excuse me, might is physical power, and, and the word power in that passage is more a picture of, of political influence or, or your ability to persuade people. So you have all these human things that you can bring to bear on a problem that could, could try to make it happen. He's saying it's not gonna happen by any of those. If this temple is going to be built, it's not by your physical strength or by your political connection. It's going to happen by the power of the Spirit at work, right? It's not about your worldly connections. It's not about how strong you are. It's about whether or not the Spirit of God has infused you with the power to make it happen, not by power, not by might, but by my Spirit. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen by God's power. Now, here's the reality. When things get difficult, when we face the opposition, our human tendency is to try harder. Our human tendency is just to do more. Our human tendency is probably to even talk more. So even this morning as I was praying for you and I was thinking about it, I had this picture of parenting. I had this picture, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to offend somebody saying this, I had a picture of a mom actually who just kept talking more because there was chaos in her home and there was something she wanted for her son, but she just, she, instead of turning to God, there's this picture that, and we all do this, where we just decide, well, we're just gonna give more lectures and we're just gonna give more rules and we're gonna just hand out more punishment and we're gonna do and do and do. And I'm not saying to disengage. What I am saying is not by might, not by power, but do we stop and we say, God, this is chaos and I don't know what to do. And so I'm inviting your spirit into this, would you be the one to bring about the change that needs to happen, whether it's in your family? If we're just honest with ourselves, we know our human tendency is just to do more. So when things aren't going well here at church, my first reaction is just to work another eight hours. Just be here a little bit longer. It's not to go sit before the Lord and pray. And what God is saying is he gives us this passage is, look, if you want it to happen at grace, if you want grace to be the church you've called it to be, it's not going to be because you work 80 hours a week because you surrender to the power of God. And he does what he wants to do at Grace Community Church. So hopefully you still have uh, Zechariah open. So uh, look at verse seven, because I love this. It says, when we finally do uh, uh, lean into the spirit and the spirit does it, uh, the power, the real power is unleashed. So verse seven says, who are you, O mountain before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. Whatever obstacle is in front of you, when you are operating in the spirit of God, that obstacle is taken away. The mountain becomes a plain. We can't make a mountain disappear in our own strength. Only God can do that. And he says, when you lean into me, when the spirit of God is doing the work, the mountains before you, the obstacles that seem insurmountable are laid waste. They're laid flat. It's a beautiful picture. I shall bring forward the top stone amid the shouts of grace, grace to it. Look at verse eight. It says, in the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house 
and his hands shall also complete it. God has called Zerubbabel to this incredible task of rebuilding the temple and starting the clock for Jesus coming. And no matter how tired he gets and how many obstacles he faces, God is gonna use him to be complete the task. Now, just to give you a little bit of, of history here, who is Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel is actually the grandchild of the king that existed when Nebuchadnezzar came in and took them. So he is, he is a descendant of the king and he is the first governor that's sent back to Jerusalem. He's in the very first wave of exiles who are sent back and he is the one who's tasked with the building of the first temple or the second temple, the temple that the Romans end up destroying in 7 AD. So that's his job. And if you get into the Zechariah passage and they've Built, basically built the foundation of the temple, but because of all the opposition and all the discouragement, the work has stopped. And so all there is is this foundation, right? There's nothing else there. And they're looking at this foundation and, and Zechariah is writing this prophecy and saying, look, look at, look at what started, right? So keep reading. If you go to verse uh, 10, still in, or excuse me, verse nine, it says, then will you know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Uh, the best way that I can give you some interpretation of verse 10 is to read it for you in the New Living Translation. New Living Translation says, do not despise these small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. I was sitting in uh, the, the Greys have a farm up north and I was up there by myself and I was uh, pretty discouraged to be honest with you. And uh, I was feeling like I didn't have the next big thing for you, um, knowing that the ministry season was coming up and uh, it, it feel, sometimes it feels like a lot of pressure to lead a church. And I was just sort of like, man, just what's next? Like what, what's gonna get people fired up? And you know, what's that thing that you wanna give us? And uh, God takes me to not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So that's helpful. Okay, so I'll lean into your spirit. That would be good. I get it, Lord. And then I get to this verse 10 and I read it in the New Living Translation. And, and it's kind of like a little slap to the face in the, the way only God can, maybe a slap to the back of the head. And God is just saying to me, hey, what I've started, I'm gonna finish. I've already begun a good work. You don't need the next big thing. And I think what he's saying is don't abandon what I've already started. If you've walked with God for very long, you know that God's timing is not our timing. That waiting for God can sometimes be excruciating. That you know what God has called you to do, but it hasn't all come together quite the way you thought it would come together. And I think the passage is telling us when you're in that season, be careful not to abandon what God has already done. And so we as a church, it's easy for us to sit and say, man, if we could only be like fill in the blank, right? If we could only be like that church, oh my gosh, that's something. Well, look at all the things that are happening there. We do it as individuals. We look at other, boy, if I could only have a life like that Christian, if I could only be used by God like that Christian. And I just think God is saying, hey, do not despise what I've already started in your life. I've begun a good work in you and I will see it to completion. But I think too often when we start to do things in our own power and I might, we abandon what God has been doing and we go off and we start something anew on our own and we get ourselves in trouble. Do not despise the small beginnings for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. So I feel like God has made it crystal clear to me that he has begun a good work on the corner of Maras and I-94, that there's something unique and powerful that's happening here on uh, this corner and in this church and that we need to stay the course. 
We need to celebrate the small beginnings, and some of them are not that small beginnings, but we need to stay the course and celebrate those. So what I'm going to do for the next few minutes is I'm just going to lay out what I think those small beginnings are. The, as I sat up north before the staff came, we had an off-site right after that, um, I just began to write on white sheets on the, on the wall all the small beginnings, the things that I felt like the Lord has said to us over the last few years that are, that are now a part of our, our DNA and, and who we are. So if you want to put that first slide up there, it's just a graphic of what I would uh, consider our foundation. And I just want to make this clear, um, our foundation is Jesus. So um, I get it. Our foundation is Jesus. These are the small beginnings as we live into the foundation of Jesus. So the first thing uh, that I just think is part of our foundation is we're going to have a culture of prayer. If you remember, it was about three and a half, four years ago that we began to talk about that we needed a greater culture of prayer, that we are a church that prays, but we didn't have a culture of prayer. What does that mean? It means that we didn't often pray listen, and then move. Sometimes we would say a prayer, then we would move, then it would be all messed up, and then we would all get together and say, we probably should pray about this because it's all messed up, right? Prayer was not the, the precursor to everything we do. We want to get to the place where everything we do comes out of hearing God tell us, this is the way you should go. This is what you need to do. So we wanted to, to change the culture. We wanted to be a praying church, not just a church that prays, but to truly have a culture of prayer. So one of the things we said we were going to do is we were going to get 1,000 people praying at 930 for the church every morning. We're now at about 850 people. So if you're not one of those people, take out your phone. I'll wait. You guys always think I'm kidding when I say it. And who, what pastor says, take out your phone? This one. So take out your phone and uh, send a message to 41411. That's the phone number you would put in. And you just type in 930 prayer and you will begin to get a text from us. And imagine we get over a thousand people who stop multiple times a week at 930 every morning to pray for grace. One of my favorite stories with the 930 prayers when people tell me about running into people they don't even know because their alarms go off in their phone. They're in the grocery store and they look down the aisle like, Grace? Grace? It's a beautiful thing. And if you're in your boardroom and your alarm goes off, just turn it off. If somebody says, why, what was that? You can say, yeah, it's just, we just stop and we pray for our church. It's a great chance for you to be a witness to other people. But imagine a thousand people praying for the leadership of grace, praying for the movement of God and grace. God will move in powerful ways as we come together. It's a biblical truth. So if you haven't signed up, make sure you sign up for the 930 prayer. But we also talked about getting together a half hour before the services which we do, so there's a prayer time before each service. You should come to that. It's a rich time where we just listen to God, how he wants to minister uh, that day and what he wants to do at Grace and through Grace. So this idea of being a praying church, we have restorative prayer teams. Somebody moved too fast. We're not to that one yet, so ignore it. We have restorative prayer teams, uh, which have just had a huge impact. We now have a prayer ministry team uh, that's been trained and equipped while Rock was here and Melissa Gray is leading that up. And those are the people that meet with you down here and just listen to the spirit of God and pray over you after the service is done. So, th so this idea that we wanna have a culture of prayer has become part of our DNA. And I want you to know something, it's a beginning, not an end. We have a ways to go, but it certainly has made a big difference in who we are as a church. And we are beginning to see that we truly have a culture of prayer. The other thing that's absolutely foundational is we are going to be a word and spirit church. And I think this is pretty rare. My experience as I've grown up and as I've spent time is there are word churches that are serious about teaching the word of God. And there are spirit churches who are serious about moving in the spirit and allowing the, the, all of the gifts of the spirit. But there are not a lot of churches that hold on to both 
firmly. And we are going to be a word and spirit church. We are going to allow all of the gifts of the spirit to have a place at grace, whether that's healing or tongues or prophetic words, but all of the gifts are going to be there. And we are going to stay grounded in the word of God. And we're going to use the word of God as a way to, to, to know how to operate and how to move through this movement of the spirit. And that's the kind of church we're going to be. And that's the kind of church we're becoming. I think every one of these could be a sermon, so I know I'm moving fast, but I want you to hear it. The next one uh, that I have up here is that we, uh, we talked of, uh, this happened about two years ago. I really felt like what God was saying to me is I want to unleash the creative spirit at grace. And it really came out of Ephesians 2.10, the, the Doug Kempton version of Ephesians 2.10 is you are a work of art to make art. That's really, if you boil it down, what Ephesians 2.10 is saying. God has made you as a work of art, and he's given you good works to do. And when you do the good works God wants you to do, it is a picture of, of just doing God's artwork. So you are a work of art made to, to make art. And so we talked about God unleashing his creative spirit. And one of the things we asked was that God would start that with our worship arts department. And they would begin to write some of our own music. We did one of the songs, The Joy of the Lord is Our Strength, is one of the songs that John wrote, but downpour that Norflet wrote. We have song, sometimes the worship set is three. We've even had Sundays where every song we did was written by our worship art department. It's the beginning of that God pouring out his creative spirit. But I want you to know something. You don't have to be on the stage to be creative. You can make art when you hang drywall. You can make art as a financial planner. You can make art as a mother. You can make art as a, as a business leader. God wants you to bring the creative spirit into everything you do. Like we are made in God's image and God is infinitely creative. So there's this picture of unleashing his creative spirit at grace. The next one is the six essentials. And we've talked about this probably uh, more than you guys like, but the idea is that there are six things you need to grow spiritually. If you come to me and say, I'm really not growing in my walk, I would ask you about these six essentials. I would ask you if you're coming to church because it's necessary that you gather. I would ask you if you're connected with other people. Connecting is essential. I'd ask you if you're serving anywhere. Why? Because God made you to do a good work and you need to do what God made you to do. I'd ask you if you have a generous heart, if your heart is devoted to God. I'd ask you if you are telling other people about God, if you have hearts of influence. But it's a picture of these six things coming together to help us to grow spiritually. So the six essentials are critical. The next one is a church without curtains. So if you guys were here then, we did a study, but that became part of our DNA. And here's what that means to us. And this is so important to me that we are just gonna be an honest church, that you can come to grace and you can be who you are. And that even means if you're upset with God, you can be upset with God. If you're disappointed with God, you can be disappointed with God. If you're having the greatest time ever with God, you can bring that well, that we're gonna celebrate, but we're gonna be honest. The church has always been a place where people have put on pretenses, where they've pretended to be something because it's what we're supposed to do. And we're said, we're not gonna be that kind of church. We're gonna be a church where we can be honest. We have to be a church where we can be honest, where we can be known. And it's just part of the small beginnings that God has put into place. Uh, the next one is a mosaic. And I think you guys have heard this word a lot as well, but this just means that we are going to be a racially diverse church. We are gonna be an economically diverse church. We are gonna be an age diverse church. We're not just gonna be a church for millennials or for old people that we want everybody to come together. And what comes with that is all kinds of difficulties. 
Because part of the mosaic isn't just race and it isn't just age, but it's past religious experiences. So you guys all, and Norfolk's the one that really brought this term to us, but one of our greatest diversities is what I would call your preferences. What you like is different than what you like, which is different than what you like, which is different than what you like. And just so you know, what you like is different than what they like. And it doesn't not like there's just four likes. There's all kinds of likes. And so we have to be a church that puts aside our preferences and prefers one another because on some Sundays, you're going to love the worship. And on other Sundays, it's just going to be a little too something, something for you. Right? But the idea is, can we worship God together? Now, the, the, the solution to that would just be to have a lot of different services. We could have a, a white service, and we could have a black service, we could have a young service, and I don't, want, I don't need any males. I know that that's pretty broad, broad. But the idea here is that we are going to worship together, in the room together, as a mosaic, because we think that's what God wants to do in this particular church. And here's the deal. Um, I say this. I actually have a friend here today that I was in a meeting, and I said this recently to him. Um, I love what God is doing in the mosaic, but we have not arrived. It is a small beginning, and we will get there when our small groups are mosaics, when our small groups are diverse, when we're sitting across the table sharing meals and having conversations, you are not really going to move into this idea of being one by listening to me. It's only going to happen when you sit at the table and you talk about politics in that, and you don't expect me to tell you about politics, but when you can actually have a conversation and understand each other's position and still love each other across political lines and racial lines and age lines, that's when it's going to, but small groups are a critical part of what we do. We are a church of small groups. You have to be connected with others. So with that in mind, I want to just give you a little bit of explanation about one of the things that's coming, excuse me, that I just think is, is profound. So one of, you guys enjoyed having Rock here, I hope, our mentoring pastor. He was incredible. Uh, but one of the things he gave us is this idea of D groups, discipleship groups. A discipleship group is simply this. It's four to six people meeting together, uh, all of the same gender. So we'll take that part of the mosaic out, but that's because of the type of conversation we have. But we do want diversity uh, other than gender in the groups. But you come together, four to six people, and you basically have three things that you talk about. The first thing you talk about, we call it out. And it's just having a conversation about where you have shared Jesus with somebody out there, where you have had a brave conversation outside of these walls. You know what I love about that? If all of our small groups were asking that question, then we might be having more conversations out there. And in fact, I don't know if you know it, but the only reason you should be coming here is to be prepared to go out there and share Jesus with other people, right? So we come together and we have the out conversation. Where have you had brave conversations? Where have you felt the spirit nudge you to talk to a waitress or to a, a friend or to a coworker? And, and so we begin to encourage one another to have more of those. And then the next thing we do is what we call up. And we just read a, a, a chapter of scripture and we ask the question as we read, what is God saying to you? It's not a Bible study. We have Bible studies, but this is a chance for you to listen to the Spirit of God speak through a chapter of Scripture. So the four or six of you are reading the chapter out loud, and you're just kind of highlighting or, or making note. You stop for a minute and journal about what God is saying, and then you share that with one another. I really feel like God is telling me in this particular part of this chapter that I need to. So what are we doing? We're teaching and learning together how to hear the Spirit of God speak through the Word of God, something that we could all learn to do better and better. And it's a beautiful picture of that. And then the last one is what we call in. So out, 
what do we do out there, right? Up, we read a chapter of scripture together and listen for the spirit of God to speak, not in a Bible study. You don't become a teacher. You become a listener to the spirit. And then we do in, and that's where we take anywhere of one. I think we have 33 questions or 32 questions. You literally pull a question out of a bowl and you read the question and everybody answers it. And the question might be, how's your marriage? question might be, how are you doing with finances? How are you doing with debt? The question might be, uh, where do you feel like you're just having a lot of issues with sin in the last few weeks and God's really doing a work? They're all meant to be pretty personal questions. Some of you are like, I'm never doing a D group if those are the questions. My point is, that's what it means to be connected to one another and have intentional conversation. And then we just end the D group time with praying for one another, just listening to what the Spirit might have us say and pray over one another, words of encouragement. It's just, it's a powerful thing. Very simple format. Um, It just really feels like a gift that Rock brought to us. We've been doing it as a staff. We all divide it out. We're all gonna go out and start our own D groups. Uh, We have lots of people that we've trained in D groups, but you, and by the time fall comes, everyone in this room needs to be in a D group because I think it'll be transformational in your life. So that's part of the small groups. And then the last one, and I need to wrap this up, is justice. But I want to make sure I give this um, fair shot. When I, one of the things I uh, love about traveling and going to other churches or uh, groups of churches is talking about all the great justice ministry that God has given us as a church. It's really very profound, all of the things we get to do. So I don't know if you know it, but we have a federally qualified healthcare center in our parking lot, right? That means that anyone who is uninsured or underinsured can get world-class, and I'm telling you, it's as good as any other place you would ever go, world-class medical care. Do you know that it's also a full dental clinic? So if you do not have dental insurance and you have a toothache, you can go there. You can go there and they'll take care of your teeth. They'll take care of whatever you want. We need to tell more and more people about this amazing thing, but that's a picture of justice. There is chaos in the world, there's brokenness in the world, and God has given us this thing called Covenant Community Care right here in our parking lot that's a partner with us to help the uninsured. Think about it, we have the sports program that's serving thousands of kids and helping kids have sports where they wouldn't. That's a picture of justice. My father's business, the food pantry, that's justice ministry. We have these, these outreaches that are having huge impact across the city. Uh, and the last one I just want to talk about, and, and you're going to hear a lot about this as, as the fall comes and, and we do it, but, but God has entrusted to us the opportunity to teach every willing third grader in Detroit to read at or above grade level. God has entrusted the mission of this to us. We get to lead the way in partnership with many other churches who are gonna also be a part of it, but, but he's given us this vision to do this. And I have this picture this week as I was thinking about uh, this particular part of the sermon, like what if all of us gave an hour a week? What if everyone at Grace gave one hour a week to teach a kid to read? And some of them would be doing it here. And some of it would be doing it at the Dome on Mac where we're gonna have it going. Some of them would be at Evangel Ministry. Some of you could be serving at Second Ebenezer. Some of you could be serving at, at Central Detroit Christian. But what if we just descended on the city, the, the couple thousand people that represent Grace, and we, we led the way in teaching these kids. We literally have a chance to turn the broken education system on its head. That's a picture of justice. Right, that's what God has entrusted. That's what God has entrusted to us as a church. 
So I hear the Lord saying, do not despise the small beginning. Stay the course. Do what I've called you to do. The rest is going to work out. Do it in the spirit of God. So today is uh, the day that you vote on the budget. So just real quickly, if you are a member and you haven't voted online, you can get a ballot from the information counter. Uh, just If you did vote online, your vote's in. You don't need to vote again. If you didn't, just grab the ballot and vote before you leave. Uh, if you still have questions about the budget, the budget is made available to you line item by line item, so no secrets here. We are a church without curtains. Um, but if you have questions specifically, if you just go right up there on the balcony, uh, Dorothea and Bryce will be up there after the service to answer any questions you might have uh, before you vote, um, but you can do that. Um, and before we just wrap up the service, I just want to... Just kind of come back to it. So as we prayed this morning, kind of the message we heard is that there are people at Grace who feel like God has abandoned them. There are people who are coming in the doors today that feel distant from God, who feel like they just, that God is far off. And I want to tell you, he's not. Some of you are, are weary and tired and you've just been trying harder. You've been muscling up and you've been doing it in power and might. God said, would you just give it to me? Would you just allow me to do it in my strength? Some of you are facing some pretty big mountains. And so you've just gotten busier and worked harder. And I think what God wants you to hear this morning is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So as I close this in prayer, I just want to invite, if that resonates with you, just come down. Let our ministry team just lay hands on you and pray for you and encourage you as you do what God has called you to do. So Lord, I just thank you for the small beginnings that you've begun at Grace. I thank you for this foundation that you've put in place, this culture of prayer, this word and spirit church. I just, I'm so excited about what you are going to do in this place and through this place. I just, I'm thankful that you speak. I'm thankful that it's, I sit at a little farmhouse and ask you that you point me to your word. And it's just a beautiful thing. So Lord, we just give Grace Community Church to you. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Would you just move in a powerful way? Would you do what only you can do as we've prayed for the last several years? Would you do more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power of the spirit that's at work within us? Lord, I pray for the people who are weary and tired, who have been facing chaos in their home or chaos at work or chaos in their, in their ministry life. Would you just encourage them? Would you just let them know that you have not abandoned them, that you are close by them, that you love them with an everlasting love? Lord, thanks for these people. Thanks for this church. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we would love to pray for you. Feel free to come down. God bless you. You have a great Sunday. Ooh.